For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. My ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Song of the Grasshopper. I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms and their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats, trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions, find grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, mirrored interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas. 
Wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Uh, so, um, hi, welcome. Uh, for new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the teacher, guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And tonight, I'm very happy to have uh, with us to give the talk Alex Peltz. Uh, Alex is uh, was uh, graduated from uh, University of Chicago Divinity School in Buddhist Studies and is one of a number of people in our Sangha, I don't know, about maybe 10, including some people who moved away, who are uh, who's, are serving as chaplains in this challenging time. Uh, I'm, um, it's it's re- uh, really amazing in this time of COVID to um, think of all of the struggles of people working in hospitals. So, uh, Alex, thank you very much for taking time from uh, your work to be here. Thank you so much, Taigen. Um, it's uh, it's really an honor to be here tonight. It has been far too long since I've been gathered in a Zoom room with everyone who I see here tonight. So really great to see you all. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. Um, The title of my Dharma talk tonight is True Lies, Interfaith Chaplaincy in the Time of COVID, um, which is sort of my cheeky way of broaching the topic of what it means to be an interfaith chaplain and what religious faith means as a Buddhist. And to be a little bit more specific, uh, as a Soto Zen Buddhist, to talk about how I work with ideas like expedient means and karma in order to build connections with patients who, for example, are, you know, Catholic or Jewish. They're not familiar with these Buddhist ideas. And so in short, uh, and I think an actual in-depth answer to this question would probably take multiple lifetimes, but in short, how is it that I can walk into a room as a Buddhist and pray to God for a patient in a way that is meaningful for them and is meaningful to me? Someone who doesn't believe in God And what does this have to do with the Bodhisattva path? So like Taigen was kind of mentioning, we do have a sort of weirdly disproportionate number of chaplains in this Sangha. I see one in the audience tonight. Good to see you, David. Um, We also have a number of psychologists in our Sangha, which is, I think, a a fairly similar kind of role. Um, So a lot of helping positions happening here in the Sangha. Um, I wonder why that might be. If you go on Wikipedia to look up what it is a chaplain does, the definition there is something like uh, a religious authority or a counselor or a guide who is attached to a secular or a non-religious institution. Um, So that would be something like a prison or a school or, in my case, a hospital. And in my experience, when I think about how I can explain my job, the way that I sort of conceive of it is helping people to make meaning out of the sort of grim things that happen in and around hospitals. So there's obviously a lot of working with grief. The big one is dealing with death in the hospital, but a big part of grief is also other things, Um, right? As a Zen Buddhist, I feel a special affinity to this aspect of the work because As a Buddhist, my approach to grief is to foster an acceptance of change, right? Foster an acceptance of anicca, that things are impermanence, that nothing stays the same forever. Um, This is, I think, you know, the heart of making meaning in the present. The heart of making this meaning mindfully is an acceptance of change. It's an acceptance of uncertainty and of ambiguity. Um, We need to be able to see that not only are things different, than they are, but that they're invariably going to be different in the long run, right? Nothing is ever just one way. 
anything that doesn't seem one way to one person and one way to another is not a real thing. That's what an illusion is. And I think about this when I think back on one of the patients who I saw actually this weekend, that was overnight on Saturday. And this was a patient who is facing a hospitalization that left them questioning everything about their reality. Um, you know, unsure what to trust in her experience, unsure what to trust from her family, unsure about the future, really, you know, unsure who she was after getting this news and being in this hospital like this. And so we talked for a long time about a lot of different things uh, as might come up with a crisis like this. And eventually we got to a point in the conversation where what came to me as a sort of therapeutic intervention would be to chant for her. And I thought, you know, song of the grass hut seems like it might help her in this scenario. So I asked if I could chant this, this chant for her. And she said, sure. And, and this is a lifelong Catholic. And she was moved to tears by the song of the grass hut. And she asked me to print a copy for her. Um, and I asked her, you know, what, you know, what about this was so meaningful to you? What, what is it that's helping you here? And she said that this line, let go of hundreds, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely, um, really spoke to her as a person struggling with trauma and anxiety, right? She was struggling and she still is to relax, to open her hands, to accept what comes to her, to, to take it in the moment rather than grasping on tightly. And she said this idea of just find grasses and build a hut, don't give up. She said that was the best advice that she'd heard in a long time. So this is just an example of the fact that this faith, this Buddhist faith, this Dharma, has the ability to talk to people who maybe are not Buddhists. Um, there are ways that this faith can connect with people regardless of what it is they believe. And when you're working with real deep suffering like this, you know, the suffering that happens in all human life, you are tasked with a lot of questions about why and people want to figure out why is this happening for people who believe in God. This is a place where God comes in a lot of handy. God is a very useful concept. It's very comforting to think that, well, this happened because there is an all powerful deity who knows that this is the right thing and this is the best thing. And so even if it doesn't make sense to me, it must be the best thing because God made it happen, right? That's a very comforting idea for a lot of people. As Buddhists, we don't necessarily have that idea. And so the question then becomes, how do we explain suffering? How do we explain why this suffering is happening to me? How do we explain uh, why this suffering happens to people who are good people, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the place that I go here, the place that I have found to be productive is to think about karma and the functionings of karma, how that acts in our life, how that interacts with our life. While, you know, we are contending with the karma of others as we answer this question, as I'm contending with the karma of others, I'm also faced with my own karma in every moment. Um, I'm always facing up with these karmic seeds bearing fruits and bringing me into these situations where I am faced with certain things. There are Dharma gates I have to cross, right? So I can tell another story to illustrate this. Before I was doing hospital chaplaincy, I worked with a group called the Night Ministry. And the Night Ministry has a bus and they drive around from place to place in Chicago and they give out meals and there's a social worker and a nurse for folks experiencing homelessness. And when I was a chaplain with the Night Ministry, there was a client who I had sort of built a relationship with, built a rapport with. And one day we were talking and we were joking around and I made a joke and it just, you know, I would say it didn't land, but that would be an understatement. It actively made him very upset and it totally killed any sort of rapport we had before that. It was, um, it was really bad. I mean, it was really uh, something in my practice that affected me, that stuck with me. And it was a failure. It was a failure and it was traumatic to me. So after that, uh, I didn't really joke around with my clients, which if you know me, that takes some effort because I'm a pretty silly person. 
But then the karmic part of this whole thing is this patient who I saw a couple weeks back and we were talking and it got to the point where we were joking around a little bit. And this is really, you know, this is the oh crap moment. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I take this risk of making this joke and it goes really well. And she laughs. And what she says to me is, thank you. I needed that. She said, I needed that laughter. That laughter is a gift from God. Which was just this like totally shocking thing for me to hear as this person who up until that point, to me, laughing was a bad thing in chaplaincy. Laughter was a dangerous thing. So in this moment, I was faced up with this karma of mine, this chaplain karma, this um, idea that I had been working with in my life and in my practice that, that joking is bad. And yet here I was with this woman who told me, no, this is this not only is this good, this comes from God. And being mindful in this moment is liberatory. It's a gift. This is the way that we can act with our karma in a way that is liberatory and productive, right? It's a way to relieve our own suffering and to relieve the sufferings of others. I bring all this up to say that I find myself bringing up karma in a lot of situations where other chaplains or other patients might go to talking about God. And it isn't because I want to imply that karma is a force or an agent that causes things to happen in the same way that we might think God works, right? It's not like, it's not like we're going to pray to our karma and expect a result in the same way that some people pray to God. The question for me then is, well, what is it that we do with our karma? And the answer is that we're mindful with it. We're mindful of it. We're present with our karma. We act with our karma and we, we improvise with it. We dance with our karma. We see what we can do. We accept the situation as it is and we work with it. That's why, you know, before we did this Dharma talk, we had this repentance verse and we chanted all my ancient twisted karma. I now fully avow. Avowing is when you, you accept responsibility, you avow it and you move on from it. That's how avowing works. And it's also why in the Ehe Koso Hatsuganmon, Longya says what in past lives was not yet complete now must be complete. In attending to the effects that my karma is having on my life, in attending to the effects that actions and behaviors have on these lives, um, we are completing the process. We are seeing where do we stand karmically? What are these patterns of behavior that we stand within and how do we escape them so that we can be happier? How can we avoid suffering? And my understanding of karma is fairly Yogacara influenced. Um, so I would love to hear any, any other thoughts in the discussion part after this. But to me, the, the way that I kind of think about karma is in this, um, I don't want to say psychological because I think that is a reduction of it. But there's this almost psychological sort of sense, this almost like repetition compulsion thing to it, where, you know, we operate in the world through these unconscious patterns and these frameworks that get uh, more deeply inculcated the more we act on them and the less we are aware of them, right? Uh, we fall into these patterns that we can't break out of because we don't even see that they're patterns. And so speaking of interfaith, there is a, a great line in uh, Ecclesiastes, which says, that which is done is that which shall be, and that which is to be hath already been. I think that's that's karma. That's what karma is. You're going to keep doing the things that have been until you can step outside of it and recognize it. It keeps going until we break the cycle. And when I offer up this idea of karma in place of God, what I'm doing is pointing to the way that change and adaptation to changes are something that can come from within us rather than from outside of us, rather than from God. It's something that we have power in our lives over. We can step outside. We can notice this karma. I remember a family who I had who was so excited to talk to me because they wanted a, a non-traditional chaplain. Um, and apparently I'm not, a I'm not a traditional chaplain. So they were very excited to talk to me. And, you know, they kept saying like, oh, this is a God thing, you know, like God made this happen. And while I didn't tell them, no, that's not the case, I shared with them that, no, you know, I think what happened here is that there's some sort of karmic affinity. And when I say karmic affinity, what I mean is that there's something meaningful about this situation. 
Um, there is something in this situation and the fact that we have met that is giving us an opportunity to liberate ourselves and to liberate each other. Um, to say that this is karmic is to say that there is an opportunity here. There's an opportunity here. And in this moment of crisis, um, in this true Dharma gate, they found themselves face to face with some really deep karma, which interacted with their understanding of spirituality, which interacted with how they find meaning in their lives, which interacted with how they adapt to change. And in this moment, I was this non-traditional chaplain who could help accompany them with this, who could help them through the threshold of this Dharma gate. And I think this is one way that spirituality can be meaningful without a God. And this is one bridge that I can use to connect with non-Buddhist patients. The question is, what is it in our karma that might lead us to this particular occasion for the relief of suffering? And this isn't in a predetermined sense, but in this very kind of human way. How do we accept the past as something that is meaningful and something that is productive, something that is conducive? How are the seeds of our karma bearing fruit? And so, again, I have to return to the story about this laughter and, and, you know, my fear of this laughter and the fact that karmically being in this room, what this patient showed me was this pattern in my life, this, this sort of message that I had fallen into. And she helped me to break out of that. And she made that meaningful to me. She helped give my life meaning and give my practice meaning. And we can't talk about, um, you know, I mentioned that I, I didn't deny this thing. So the last, I know I've talked about a lot, but I want to touch on one kind of last major theme in bringing up the idea of upaya, expedient means. Um, the fact that there can be multiple truths that do not contradict each other. When you look at the word for expedient means in Sanskrit is upaya which comes from this prefix upa, which is sort of a preposition. It means like um, above or super or ultimate. And then ya, which comes from a verb, which means to go. So, you know, you put it together and it means something like, you know, a, a, a really good tool. Uh, the word is also used in a non-Buddhist context to mean something like a trick or a remedy also. So expedient means trick remedy, skillful means, these are all synonyms of each other. And this is the sort of true lies bit of the talk that I was talking about. And like I said before, I'm being a little bit cheeky here, but the point is that it's not so cut and dry that either one explanation can be true or another. We have this idea of two truths in Mahayana Buddhism, which says that one thing can be true on a conventional level, while another thing can be true on an ultimate level. The Buddha used expedient means because he was a good teacher. This was good teaching. People learn things differently. And if a person doesn't understand something explained one way, then you have to explain it in a different way, or you have to break the concept down and explain it in pieces. In short, you have to meet people where they're at, because while it might bring me comfort to know that the self is illusory, for someone who wants a chaplain to pray with them, that really might not help very much. And expedient means are about experimentation. You know, just as people are unique, people need unique means. And in the course of finding these means that work and that resonate, there are going to be failures. It's inevitable. There's no way to avoid failure. If you're not failing, you're not trying. How else are we going to find what works if we don't rule out what doesn't? Um, even the Dharma itself, even if we call ourselves Buddhists, uh, the Dharma is often illustrated with this concept of the raft, right? The Dharma is like a raft. You use it to get across water. You use it to get from one bank to another. Once you get to land, it doesn't really make sense to use a raft anymore. You're not going to carry a raft over land because that's not helping. you. So even this Dharma, even this teaching, it's only a tool. It's only a raft for liberation. It's not, well, I won't go into that, but it is a raft. There is a line in, uh, in Bendowa, in the Shobogenzo of Dogen, where Dogen says, and this is a verbatim quote, a Buddhist should neither argue superiority of doctrines 
nor settle disputes over depth or shallowness of teaching, but only know authenticity or inauthenticity of practice. So I'll read that again. A Buddhist should neither argue superiority of doctrines nor settle disputes over depth or shallowness of teachings, but only know authenticity or inauthenticity of practice. So we have right here, clearly, explicitly, Dogen telling us that doctrine and teachings are things that come secondary to practice. If one's practice is authentic, the superiority or inferiority of the teachings that cause one to practice that way, they don't really matter. That's not the important thing in this question. And this, of course, opens the path to expedient means. And it opens the path to reach across these faith boundaries to learn from people in the same ways that they might learn from us, to be open to receive in the same way that we're open to give, meeting each other in the middle, meeting in a way that is mutually beneficial. We can accept the value and the meaning in different religious beliefs that we may not believe in the same way because we know that they have value insofar as they have led someone to act in a way that relieves suffering, um, in a way that we as Buddhists could say is dharmic, is in keeping with our teachings, even if they might not think of it that way. And after all, believers in God will tell you God is only a word, right? It would be foolish of us to think that we know what people mean when they talk about God when they usually don't even know what they mean when they talk about God. It's all a mystery at the end of the day. And so to wrap up these many different strands, I think I would just like to say that as a Buddhist chaplain, my practice and the unique opportunity that I have is to meet people at the threshold of Dharma gates, meet people when the going is getting really rough and to remain present in the ambiguity of these moments, to remain present with the unsureness, with the faith that this moment has the potential to liberate us, with the faith that even through the pain and the suffering of what is happening in this room right now, in this moment right now, there is something that we can take from this moment that will relieve suffering in the long run for myself and for all sentient beings. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. Very um, provocative and helpful talk. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, comments, questions, responses, uh, please feel free. Uh, Mike, would you help me call on people if you see someone? So, um, comments or responses, please. Yes, um, Michael. Uh, thank you for that. I, when you were discussing karma as psychological and then felt that would be reductive, it recalled to me something that um, I read uh, reading, and I can't remember his last name now, but the translation, the translator of Pali Canon, uh, Tanisaro, described when Buddha, when the Buddha was talking about karma in reference to Indian and Hindu uh, spirituality at the time, the Vedic milieu, uh, he said the insight that the Buddha had was that karma was not a physical phenomenon, but a mental phenomenon. And so I think broader than psychological, and that still could be dualistic uh, in, in the sense that mind and body are not two. Uh, but I think the point he was making is that karma is not, doesn't have to be this external stuff, this energy that's out there, but it's the karmic seeds are all something that's going on in mind. Um, so anyways, that, that was what came to me. I'm also curious how often reincarnation comes up in your work and how you respond to that. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, that's that's very 
a very good point. I didn't know that. And that's good to know about the, the Buddhist realization about karma. It, it reminds me also of, um, I forget where I read this, but you know, when we talk about the relationship between Buddhism and Vedic philosophy and Hindu religion, um, the sort of discovery of the Buddha about the Atman was that uh, the Atman isn't real in the way that these Vedic people said that it was. Um, you know, he was just saying there is no Atman in the sense that they talk about it, uh, which I think is almost a similar sort of thing. But in terms of reincarnation, interestingly enough, uh, reincarnation has only ever come up once in, uh, in my practice. And it was in a really goofy way. It was with a guy who was, this is actually the only patient I've ever had who was like, I don't want to talk to you because you're not Christian. But, um, you know, he said something about, he was like, uh, oh, well, you know, you're a nice enough guy, but you're not going to go to heaven if you don't believe in Jesus. And I was, I said something like, I was like, well, yeah, that's why I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but I think in, in reincarnation, uh, my understanding, the thing that I would have ready to hand if someone were to ask me about it is something that I remember our visiting teacher, Paul Disco Zengu brought up maybe a year and a half ago talking about the fact that, you know, if the self isn't real and we are reborn in each instant, we are reborn in these different forms and in these different realms every day. And so, you know, I might be in the human realm right now. I might be good, but tomorrow morning I'm in traffic in the highway and I'm like reborn as an Asura because I'm just so frustrated with everything. And so that's probably, I would probably go into something about that and talk about, well, we're reborn every second anyway. We're reborn every second anyway. So I don't know. What do you think that means about life after death? Yes, sir. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, I was I really enjoyed that talk. I really I really uh, find the take on uh, karma really interesting. Quite quite um, um, quite congenial to my way of thinking. Um, my question is really not to the part of your really wonderful talk, it was something that you said in the setup, and I wasn't fully tuned in, and I'm not sure that I got it correctly, so I'm going to try to paraphrase it. Maybe I'm making up the whole thing, but if I'm not making up the whole thing, I hope you'll say it again so it lodges and also explore it a little bit. And it had to do with, I think you said something like... um, Two, two people seeing the same thing in the same way is almost a definition of delusion. Did you say something along those lines? Yes, this is, uh, this is actually a, an idea that I steal from my great advisor, Brooks Aporin. Hmm. Or I was thinking maybe the multi-perspectival, whatever you say that yeah. word is, that yeah. goes with the uh, Amazonian uh, cosmology. It but yeah. uh, could you could you uh, could you uh, say a bit more about that? Because uh, usually that's where we go for a touchstone of what we can rely on is like consensual truth. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, not only not only did I think I saw that, but Tygen said he saw it too. You know, so so could you explain that? So I think I I really love this idea of the the definition of an illusion is an illusion is something that seems the same way from two perspectives. Anything that looks the same on the front and the back is an illusion. And I think that the idea behind that is that, and this might be a little bit of a hot take. I don't want to, I don't want to destroy the possibility of consensual truth and objective reality, but um, the only way that something could look the same from two different perspectives would be if you stood in my exact shoes, if you had the exact experiences that I had, and felt the exact same ways that I did. Otherwise, 
you know, we could look at the same exact thing. And even if it looks different, even if it's just a psychological, even if it's just an affective tinge to it, it's still different, right? We're still coming at it from different angles, from different perspectives. If something seems the same, if something is supposedly um, concrete in that way, if it, if it doesn't look different when you change perspectives, then there's something off because what else, what is it in the world that doesn't change? What is it that two people can agree on? Absolutely. Completely. Are you in this, are you talking mostly in terms of, um, you know, uh, everybody might make the claim that they're seeing my hand now in more or less the same way. Are we talking about this kind of thing or does this apply also to, um, uh, Oh, I don't know. Some kind of dharmic statement we might make or hear. Uh, asking the hard questions. Um, I think, you know, as a little, as a little bit of a, pluralist and a maximalist myself i'm someone who I, I have to be careful when i read books because i'll just believe the last thing that i read regardless of if it <laughs> makes sense with anything else i believe um in keeping with the sort of theme of what i was just talking about i i would like to think that even dharmic statements have the potential to be interpreted in different ways and that those different interpretations have the potential to be fruitful either in their own way or in similar ways um, it gives me a little bit of anxiety to think in this way, because I would like to think that the Dharma is something that is absolute and something that, that is the same way from all sides, but it's a raft. It's, it's temporary. It's a tool. We use it for when it works. Ogetsu. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for your Beautiful talk. Um, I don't want this to also seem like a, you know, a dissertation defense or something. So I was, I was struck by this perspective taking that it's my experience as a therapist, a psychologist, that when, when I endeavor to actually see the world in the same way that someone else sees the world, even though it's not perfect, when someone feels accompanied in that view, it shifts their view. Mm. And uh, so, so I'm just whirling this around a little bit. You know, one of my teachers said, you know, Away, enlightenment is waking up in the middle of the habitual <laughs> and then there's a shift and so I just think this this relates somehow to what you're saying but I don't want to make any strong <laughs> connections or assertions just play with this idea but I, I think it's very interesting how when we actually are right next to someone intimately then there's this possibility becomes possible, but like the habits of fear kind of frees us in certain perspectives. So I hadn't heard uh, your idea and Brooke's idea before, but uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hogetsu. I think I would, I would very much agree with that idea of, of accompanying people and attending people. Um, in my own sort of verbiage, the language I use is bearing witness. Um, a big part of what I do is bearing witness to whatever it is, is going on with these people. Um, I also think about recognition. I think recognition is another big thing that I do, recognizing people when perhaps no one else has recognized them. I think that in general, what a lot of people want out of prayer is they want their needs and their desires to be recognized. And so what I'm doing when I'm praying with someone is recognizing them in that respect. Um, and yeah, I think just, you know, the other thing I was thinking is that you mentioned, you know, being with someone in their perspective and how that can help to shift them. I would say other than requests for prayers, the thing that I do most often is repeating the phrase that's completely normal. Um, I can't tell you how many people 
ask to talk to the chaplain and it's about, you know, my husband is dying and I'm feeling this way. Is that normal? And it's always uh, bittersweet, but there is, I think, a sweetness in being able to say that is completely normal. I've heard that from so many people. You are absolutely not alone in this. And being able to accompany them in that moment, um, I think, lifts some of that weight and helps to shift that perspective. So, so to me, this is also partially verifying someone's Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. David. If I may. Uh, hi, Alex. How are you? Thank you for a, a really enlightening talk. Um, truly. Uh, most of my chaplaincy work has been with hospice people. And it's an entirely different realm. Entirely different realm. And I just started at Amita Hospital in chaplaincy residency there. And it is so different from hospice. It's like day and night. And um, and so I'm still shadowing people. I'm not saying anything yet. Uh, I'm just listening and learning because it is just so, so different. Um, I'm struck, though, by what you said about two people seeing the same thing, uh, even though they're coming from different viewpoints, could be an an illusion. Um, I may come from one aspect and someone else coming from another aspect, but grief is grief. And we all come to realize that that sense of grief that we have, even though we're coming from from, uh, different places, is very real. And so I want to get your comments on something like that, like um, having to deal with with uh, someone dying, you know, which just happened to me this last week. We're making our rounds and someone did die. Um, and there's grief in the room with the loved ones. And I think of my own grief. And, of course, I want to keep my grief separate from their grief because I'm there to support them. But I know how grief feels, at least from my perspective. And is that really an illusion? Because maybe they're seeing it from an entirely different way. I just want to get your your comment on that. Thank you, David, for for your question and also for your work, my my colleague in chaplaincy. I think that the only way that sharing grief could be an illusion is if you truly thought that you were feeling the same thing that they were. Mm. I think so much of the work is in sharing grief and the work of sharing grief is not just identifying it, not just becoming familiar with it, but also being familiar with what you are bringing into the grief and being aware of the universality of grief, but also the uniqueness of grief, right? Because while grief is grief, every grief, I think, in my experience, I think every grief has its own flavor to it, its own texture to it. Yeah. And it's different different kinds in the sense that, you know, you have a grief when someone dies, and then we have the grief of someone who, on my same shift, had a stroke and could no longer talk. Mm-hmm. And his sense of grief is very, very different than the grief of the people who lost someone. And yet it is a grief. It is a sense of loss. You know, and the only way we could communicate was through blinking of eyes. You know, it, was, uh, it was really strange because the nurse was babbling on and on as if he could talk. <laughs> and the only way he could really say, say blink once for yes and blink twice for no. And, you know, so his his sense of grief at that moment was very different from the people in the room where the patient had died from COVID. Entirely different. Entirely different. Both grief, but not the same. Mm-hmm. And they're both 
um, while they are not the same, they illuminate each other, right? Both of those yeah. briefs cast light on each other. We can learn something from both. Yeah. Yeah. So again, thank you for your talk. I really, really enjoyed it. And took copious notes. <laughs> I can send you mine if you want them. <laughs> okay. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> thank you, Alex and David. This is such a deep, important uh, conversation for all of us. I, but I want—I was going to ask you, David Weiner, as I know you have worked a lot with how to deal with, you know, the interfaith aspect that Alex was talking about. How to, how to, how to talk to someone across those boundaries. I don't know if you want have. You could say a little bit about how you see that, David. Yeah, I, I see it maybe because of being in hospice, not being in a hospital. I see it maybe a little differently in that I accept where they're at. And my thing is, if I want them to be able to draw closer to the divine, that spirit of divinity, the way they are, they are used to rather than trying to introduce something new and different. Um, most of the time, it's like when I was, for some reason, uh, I'm not sure why, but like 90 to 95% of the people I see have been Catholic. <laughs> and so it's a very, very different um, aspect. So I try to support them in their Catholicism so that they can draw nearer to God in the way they see it and not try to bring in something, you know, from me. Because most of them are in a situation where they're going to die. They're getting closer to death. And um, who am I to change their, their beliefs about God or anything? If, 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 if believing in God it brings them comfort, you know, even though I may think it's a delusion, you know, who am I to change that? Who am I should, you know, alter their way of coping with suffering? And so my way is to help them draw closer uh, and oftentimes say to people, can you feel Christ in your heart? You know, and um, one patient who is dying to them in pain, I'm in pain, and I talk to her. And I said, can you feel Christ in your heart? Can you give him a color? Can you give him a, a, a temperature? And it became very real for her. And all of a sudden, her pain was gone and her fear was gone. And so even though it's very non-Buddhist, you know, it brought comfort to her. And what what is my intention? Is my intention to take away that comfort or is my intention to intensify that comfort? And so in that type of situation, it's very, very different. And when I'm learning in a hospital, which I've only been at for two weeks, it's not the same. There's a greater ebb and flow of things than there is in a hospice situation. David, I, I hope I communicated clearly enough. I, no one should ever go into a room and try and change someone's opinions or their belief. <laughs> I, I, my motto is always when I enter a room, I'm not there to be Buddhist. I'm there to be whatever they want me to be. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, you say. I, I get called Father Alex, Pastor Alex, Dr. Alex. I am. <laughs> I, I, my favorite, my, one of my favorite quotes, there's a quote from Voltaire who, uh, and who knows if this actually happened, but it said that uh, on his deathbed, they had a priest come in and ask Voltaire, they said, renounce Satan. And he said, now's not the time to be making enemies. And that's that's sort of my stance on it. Yeah, I know. I didn't mean to imply that you do that. I'm not saying that. But you, I think you you have a little bit more. I will too eventually have a little bit more freedom to bring things up in a hospital situation than I would in the hospice situation. You know, oftentimes I'm reading books to. My Catholic patients, such as From Light to Light, talking about the great saints, and they finding so much pleasure and, and comfort in that, that that's, you know, what more can I do? You know, that's the, to me, the highlight, to be able to bring them that comfort and closeness to what they see as, as reality, the ultimate reality, what, how they see the ultimate reality. 
Mm-hmm. So it's different. I'm learning huge difference between hospital and hospice. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm still very much, like I say, two weeks into it. So I'm very much a neophyte. Well, thank you. Thank you for your comments. And I would love to meet up and talk further sometime, David. Sure. Sure. So, so that, this is a wonderful, uh, deep conversation. Uh, does anybody else, uh, somebody who hasn't spoken yet, have something to, a question for Alex or anything to, any perspective? Bryant. Bryant. Uh, first, I apologize for the lighting. I'm in my car. I'm not being lit from above from the Empyrean. Um, <laughs> although maybe, maybe Alex, your talk was so enlightening. That's the the shining, the light from above that's <laughs> piercing me with a bolt of realization. Um, wonderful talk. Uh, and you put out a request maybe for a Yogacara perspective. And, uh, you know, there's many ways one could approach your talk from a Yogacara perspective. I'll just throw one out there as a, a teaser, you know, the eight, uh, the eight consciousnesses, you know, storehouse consciousness um, is a Yogacara development. And that's one way in which karma has been understood in the, in the, Buddhist model uh, is that, you know, we, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions, we are constantly depositing seeds in this storehouse, which ripen at a future time when the causes and conditions reassemble in the right way. And the theory goes that with, um, with proper mindfulness, we can burn up those karmic seeds, something which I think Laurie alluded to uh, sort of enlightenment is when you sort of wake up in the middle of some habitual action. Um, and I think, you know, our, the one way I understand the storehouse consciousness is simply memory, uh, but not only memories that you can consciously recall, but things that are sort of embodied in us, habituated uh, to a subconscious or unconscious level even. And I think we're always uh, acting out of that unless we have one of these moments of awareness or where, when we can bring awareness uh, to the moment, to the present moment, when we can sort of wake up, as it were, using the language. Um, and it gives us a choice. You know, we're not, we're not riding the habit train of karma you know, uh, we're actually given a choice. And I think that's the freedom, the liberation that the Buddha was alluding to when he, uh, when he wove, uh, his, his teachings, uh, about karma, uh, was saying that, Hey, you know, there's a way out of this, this karmic samsaric wheel that we're all on. Uh, and it's awareness, you know, otherwise known as mindfulness, otherwise known as, uh, bare knowing or just that sort of recognition. Uh, the Tibetan, the Tibetan tradition talks a lot about rec- that moment of recognition, but it's all synonyms. So maybe you could talk, um, you know, that this is a very long winded <laughs> suggestion that maybe you talk a bit about the eight consciousnesses of Yogacara and the, uh, the Aliyah consciousness and how, you know, um, we can, free ourselves from that to act uh, from a liberated um, perspective. You already kind of have <laughs> because every, you know, I, I love the fact that you keep coming back to um, don't know mind in some of our previous conversations and the fact of trying not to bring yourself forward as Dogen said, and again, Joe Cohen, but letting the situation come to you and tell you what it is uh, and being open to that. So, that's a very long-winded suggestion of a of a comment. So, have at it. <laughs> Thank you, Bryant. I will. Uh, I will do my best. And my best at this moment is I can say I'm not remembering all eight of my consciousness consciousnesses consciousnesses. So I don't think I can give a very good answer on that front. The thing that I can say very briefly is just that you know you bring up the Alaya consciousness, and I think 
it's interesting. It makes me think of what Michael was talking about earlier about this question of, well, is karma psychological or is that a reduction? And I think, um, I think that Alaya consciousness is a good, uh, a good, I want to say a, a balm to this idea of karma is psychological, because I think when we talk about Alaya consciousness, um, you know, you, you could call that the unconscious, but I think that would be a very sort of modern interpretation of things. I don't think that's really quite what it means. That being said, it's not, not what it means. It's just, you know, once you start thinking the Alaya consciousness is the same thing that Freud talks about when he talks about the unconscious, that's when you're going to go wrong, I think. Yeah. Thank and you. For anyone that doesn't have familiarity, the eight consciousness is basically the six, which is the five senses, five sense consciousness, eye, ear, nose, taste, touch. And then the sixth would be thinking, uh, our uh, Vinaya. And then uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, Vijnana. And then the Manas, the seventh, was, is where our self forms, is where the problems start <laughs> when we start forming a self concept out of these other six consciousnesses and our um, habit memories that are stored in the eighth. Mm. Thank you, Brian. Um, we're getting a little bit late, but I think maybe there's time for one more comment or question. If anybody has something. Yes. David Ray. Alex, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate hearing about your um, chaplain work. I get to see you in other, in a, in a different uh, context, and it's really nice to hear about it. Um, you talked about meaning, and I always meaning is just such a. I don't know. I just I just sort of grumble at, at the at the idea and the concept, and I'm still struggling with it. And you know, I, I had escaped from the concept of meaning into Buddhism, and here you know. The, it's in the language. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth? But I think I heard you say something uh, um, uh, along the lines that that everybody that you encounter in a chaplaincy situation is, I forget how you said it, like is, is seeking meaning or, or wanting meaning. And, I, and I'm wondering what that means. I mean, for example, when, so see, I'm wondering about the meaning of that. Um, but, but when David Weiner was talking um it sounded more like um, it sounded more like you know find, finding the way to bring comfort to someone, but but maybe those two things are intertwined. But anyway, I'd love to hear more of what you have to say about meaning. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, I think meaning is very difficult. Uh, I, I'm always drawn to uh, again, Song of the Grass Hut. Thousands of thousands of lines, myriad interpretations are only free from obstruction. Um, I think, you know, my, my stance on the world is that it is simultaneously, uh, oversaturated with meaning and completely meaningless. And those things don't contradict each other. Um, all of that being said, I think, I think there are definitely similarities and differences between what me and David Weiner were talking about. And part of that has to do with just the difference between hospital and hospice where, you know, with the urgency of hospice, I think. I could see how comfort might be more of an operative than meaning, even if those two have a pretty large overlap. Um, I think that, you know, when I say that what I do is to help people find meaning, what I mean by that, and there's that word again, is that I think much of suffering comes from a place of folks feeling like this does not make any sense. This is unfair. Why does this need to happen to me? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? Um, you know, to be or not to be stuff, right? And so to help someone find meaning is to say, okay, I hear that you're having this suffering. I hear that it doesn't feel good right now, but this isn't all there is. There is, there is something that is more important, more valuable. I am hesitant to say there's something that redeems this suffering because I don't want to see it in that sort of redeeming light. But I think the idea that, again, I hate to keep talking in circles, but the idea that there is 
meaning in our karma, that there is something that leads to the next thing, that the fact that this moment is not the complete end of the line, even if it might feel like the end of the world. How is it that this is not the end of the world? Why is it that I keep going? Thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Alex, very much. This has been a really uh, deep conversation. Uh, a lot to feel and think about. Um, so thank you all. <laughs>